One wonders if there were ever a time when Jesus of Nazareth did not sense at least an inkling of a call from his heavenly father, the one that he would come to know as Abba. If carpentry were the family's business, it was far from a foregone conclusion that this would be Jesus' default vocation. In fact, at the tender age of 12, Luke tells us that Jesus thought it a no-brainer that he would be in his father's house about his father's business. Would that the historical record offered us even a few more crumbs as to what transpired in Jesus' life in those 18 years between his bar mitzvah, if you will, and his baptism. Now, Luke does note that Jesus was roughly 30 when he was baptized. The fact that the historical record tells us nothing did not keep early followers of Jesus from sometimes fashioning fanciful stories about his childhood. Endure three. It is said that Jesus was fashioning for himself clay pigeons. So pleased with his product, he claps his hands and off they fly. We needn't wonder what Jesus was up to. He was up to stuff like this. Or was it the time that Jesus was playing with a playmate, gets angry at him like Ivan the Terrible, curses him dead? His parents, that is the parents of the now dead playmate, get upset, plea that Jesus would restore his life And so he does. Moral of that story, don't go to Jesus' house. Or might it be that Jesus was on his way to fetch a pail of water and he falls down and in so doing breaks the container undeterred, makes his way to the well, is more than happy to place the water in his cloak, brings it back to Mary, and she is well pleased, although not with the fact that he broke the picture. Fascinating stories unencumbered with history. Even when Jesus emerges from the Galilean backwater that was Nazareth around the age of 30, the details are far too sketchy to satisfy our historical curiosities. We do learn from the canonical gospels, however, that Jesus eventually joined the throngs of people being baptized by John in the River Jordan. What's more, the gospel writers maintain that Jesus' baptism was far more than a cool dip on a hot day. It was marked, we're told, especially by Mark, by ripped open heavens, by the descent of the Spirit as a dove, And with that heavenly voice saying, this is my son, the beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. Luke and John link Jesus' public call to ministry and the beginning of that ministry more than less to the time of Jesus' baptism. Mark, and even more so Matthew, however, delay Jesus' ministerial debut until after his time of temptation in the wilderness and his return to Galilee. By the way, 
in Greco-Roman antiquity, Galilee was that region that had a less than stellar reputation. As J.B. Lightfoot notes, the Galileans were commonly regarded as, quote, a tumultuous people, constantly intrigued with the rumors of false messiahs. Jesus of Nazareth would soon supply more grist for their messianic rumor mill in Galilee, but no false messiah would he prove to be. Although a son of Joe, he was anything but average. Matthew, now following Mark, seemingly indicates that it was in conjunction with John the Baptist's imprisonment that Jesus left the Judean wilderness to return to his hometown of Nazareth in Galilee. Matthew tells us that Jesus would, in turn, leave Nazareth. Luke tells us why. His inaugural sermon in his hometown synagogue went over, well, like a lead balloon. And what's more, he was run out of town on a rail. And one cannot help but wonder if John's incarceration, which would ultimately lead to the baptizer's execution, when coupled with the rejection of Jesus' townspeople, helped to clarify his call and to catapult him toward Capernaum, that small village on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. If that is in fact the case, it would not be the first or the last time that the Lord used tribulation and rejection to offer spiritual and vocational direction, would it? I know that I found this to be true in my own life. Perhaps you have as well. As to why Jesus went to and lived in Capernaum, we cannot say with any degree of certainty. Matthew does not miss an opportunity, however, in the words of Davies and Allison to, quote, offer scriptural warrant for a geographical fact. Per his penchant, Matthew cites sacred scripture to explain Jesus' movement to Capernaum. In fact, this is the fifth of the, so, of the twelve so-called fulfillment texts in Matthew's gospel. Citing Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, Matthew, that most Jewish of Gospels, locates Jesus somewhat ironically among the Gentiles in Galilee, in the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Matthew also maintains that in and through the ministry of Jesus, that darkness will give way to great light. And death's shadow will turn to dawn. The hope that Isaiah held out to Israel, besieged by Assyrians, Matthew extends to the nations through a wandering Galilean. And all the while, reverberating in the background of this Mathean citation of Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, are those now famous lines, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. 
For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Almost makes you want to sing, doesn't it? From the time Jesus relocated to Capernaum, Matthew reports that he began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn up right close to you. That is, turn and recognize that the advent of the kingdom through the person and mission of Jesus is right here. The kingdom of the heavens, as Matthew is wont to put it, made manifest in Jesus' ministry had and has far less to do with physical territory, that is, where God reigns, and far more to do with eschatological activity, that is, that God reigns. For Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Some 1,700 years before Isaac Watts composed these melodic lines, Jesus extended the call that he had embraced. As way leads on to way, the call of Jesus led to the call of Jesus. The only shore in view as Jesus commenced his mustard seed ministry, however, was the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, which, as it happens, is a good bit more like a small lake, 13 miles long at its longest point and seven miles or eight miles wide at its widest point. But as Jesus was walking alongside this body of water that we call a sea, that which would become a fixture in his earthly ministry, he saw two brothers, Simon Peter and Andrew by name. If Jesus, as a son of a carpenter, was walking, Peter and Andrew, who were fishers, were working. Seemingly, they were fishing from the shore, using a circular casting net. Here is how I'm taught that it worked. Stones were affixed to the edge of the net, enabling it once cast to sink deeply and in so doing to capture fish. Then a rope tied to the middle of the net was quickly and subsequently pulled up by those fishing so that the net would enclose the fish entrapped. Fancy it wasn't. Effective it was except when it wasn't, and at times it wasn't, because fish are not always lured, or so my friends who fish tell me. Neither are people who come into contact with the gospel. 
Jesus enters this fishing picture and says to the brothers, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of humanity. And as way leads on to way, the call of Jesus leads on to the call of Jesus that leads on to the call of Jesus. Set aside your nets, the called Christ calls, and allow me to fashion you into men who will be able to call others by casting figurative nets into a sea of humanity so that they too might be captivated and called by the one upon whom they can call and cast their cares. I wonder if Jesus and Peter and Andrew had ever met prior to this time. Whatever the case, we're told by Matthew that they immediately leave their nets and their very livelihood to follow the one who would come to be for them the way and the truth and the life. Well, one good turn deserves another. A little further down the shoreline, the calling Christ sees another pair of brothers, James and John by name. If Peter and Andrew were fishing, James and John were preparing to do the same. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, mending nets, minding their business, their family business. Well, Jesus sticks his nose into their business, as it were, and calls them to follow him. And lo and behold, they actually do. There's the word again. Uthios, immediately, leaving behind not only their newly mended nets, but also their fishing schooner and their beloved father. Let goods and kindred go. Like fingerprints and snowflakes, no two calls to ministry are precisely the same. It strikes me as interesting. For all of their similarities, not even the calls of Peter and Andrew and James and John mirror one another exactly. Christ's call comes in many shapes, many sizes. It, like love, is a many-splendored thing. But differences notwithstanding, from this text we can see that the call of Jesus bears certain identifiable marks. It has shared characteristics, as it were. So allow me to tick off four as this message begins to tick towards its close. Firstly, The call of Jesus entails a call from Jesus to follow Jesus. If this sounds embarrassingly simple, so be it. Theologians more learned and wise than I, Karl Barth springs to mind, how could he not with Bender among us? (laughs) They have reminded that Jesus is at the center of, of reality and ministry. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus in the morning, 
Jesus at the noontime, Jesus when the sun goes down. Now to say that the call of Jesus entails a call from Jesus to follow Jesus is not to say that everything we needed to know we learned in Sunday school. But it is to say that we do well to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Secondly, the call of Jesus is a call to proclaim a darkness-dispelling, death-defying kingdom. Isaiah's prophecy that we regard as fulfilled in Jesus should captivate and compel us. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So in concert with scripture, we are to declare that through his beloved son, God has drawn near to us. And the Lord invites us to draw near to him by praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And by aching and working toward that good and that glorious end. The call to Jesus is a call to bring others to Jesus. Even as Jesus calls us to come to him, he calls us to go for him. Heralding glad tidings of great joy for all people. The calling Christ becomes the sending Christ. And as we go, we are to fish for folks. What is more, we're to make disciples of all the nations by baptizing and teaching. Remembering all the while Christ's promised presence. He's with us always, even into the end of the age. Lastly, we do well to recognize that the call of Jesus is a costly call. Some of you already know this full well, far better than I. You've left your nets, you've abandoned your boat. And you have said so long to your families to come and prepare for ministry. Hear me clearly. Peter wonders if his sacrifice is going to be lost on the Lord. It wasn't and yours isn't. Neither has it escaped the notice of the faculty and staff here at Truett. We admire you. You inspire and instruct us and you spur us on to love and to good deeds. That being said, as Churchill once said to a war-torn Britain, this is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. The cost will continue. In fact, they'll mount We need not wonder for a moment, however, if the call is worth it. Bonhoeffer reminds, embracing Christ's call to follow him is costly because it cost us our life 
but it's grace because it's the only true life. Similarly, Jim Elliott, that martyred missionary to Ecuador, once contended he or she is no fool who gives what they cannot keep to gain what they cannot lose. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver take pains in seeking to describe the Christ figure, Aslan, to the four children. Predictably, their description spawns questions. Is he a man? Lucy asks. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is... King of the wood and son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of the beast is? Aslan is the lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Well, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The call of Jesus. Is it safe? No. Is it sound? You better believe it. And you better believe it.